the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Opinions expressed are not necessarily those of Salem Media Group, the station, or its advertisers. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I'm so glad to be in the house with you on this Monday edition of Lifeline. I hope you are doing well. I hope you are well rested after the weekend. I hope that you are full of joy and full of optimism and full of hope and full of the grace of God, even full of his spirit, which we all may have a participation in if we would but seek him especially in these days where so many things are going on that you really do need. You do need a higher power. And as Christians, we know that to be the one true and living God and his son, Jesus the Christ, as Christ said in John 17, 3. Um, And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. There's no way of knowing God apart from his son, who said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the light of the world. You know it, I know it. Um, Not everybody knows it, and sometimes we may forget it, but Jesus is the light that lighteth every man that comes into the world, gives him physical life, gives him physical life. Uh, strength, gives him a consciousness and awareness that he is the creation of an almighty God. That's what is meant in John's uh, uh, opening passages in the chapter, first chapter of John. And Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. So all human beings have to deal with him. They have to Uh, engage uh, a life traversing through this world and trying to figure out what life is about and struggling with the difficulties and the challenges and and all of the burdens that come with it. And, uh, And what we understand is that God's spirit is constantly striving with humanity as a referee to let him know the boundaries of his his thoughts, the parameters of his his uh, rights of uh, existence and the the um, the limitations of his moral and uh, ethical choices. The spirit of God is bearing record with the spirits of men that they're not right with God. This is very clearly laid out in Romans 2. Uh, the law of God is written on their hearts. So their choice making is always accompanied by the struggle of the eternal question, is this right? And is this wrong? Um, and you and I have been engaging in a struggle for years now, the struggle between light and darkness. And of course, John, John said it again, and the light 
uh, uh, came into the world and the world could not overcome it, could not apprehend it, could not comprehend it. Literally, that's the way it's spoken in the King James. And it means to bring it into subjection, to keep it from shining. But the light always shines out at the end of the day, often through a fierce battle of suppression um, Paul let us know that as well in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that uh, the uh, truth of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who are uh, holding down the truth, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because, well, to suppress the truth is to subject humanity to non-truth, to delusions, to falsehoods. And to those things that are wrong. And I know if you're listening to my voice, you know this is the big battle today around narratives, about around ideas, around ideologies. Um, we are seeing uh, today a uh, growing resistance to the longstanding narratives that have taken place over the last couple of years. Uh, to our joy and to our delight, men and women are waking up everywhere, realizing something is wrong with our government, something is wrong with our media, something is wrong with our institutions. There seems to be a collaborative effort uh, on the part of these institutions to um, exercise undue and unjust and unconstitutional control of our lives. And, you know, we let it happen for a while. And uh, many of us pushed back against it until there was a groundswell of opposition to what we know are uh, unconstitutional measures employed to control the masses in the name of a crisis that was supposed to be global in nature. So here we are two years into uh, the pandemic, and there is no more pandemic. There is not even an epidemic. We're so far, far away from that that we need to be um, disavowing ourselves of any kind of fear, of any kind of control, and getting back to the normalcy of life as free people in America. And this we will do. But we will have to press into it because you guys have been told by many of us for years now that um, we have been in a revolution and that revolution is designed to so radically change the way you live, function, do commerce, business, exist um, as to largely put almost the totality of your uh, personhood, your identity, your health, your, your thinking even. Uh, in the hands of a few major corporations around the world uh, to tell you what is good and what is bad. I was reading an article earlier uh, today uh, around what's taking place in our uh, government uh, uh, in terms of uh, what they call ESG, and it's a sort of uh, environmental social credit system that is being employed in institutions um, that they are calling corporate stakeholders, whereby they engage in moral, ethical um, uh, judgment calls on its company and on its employees and on everyone as to whether or not we are complying with environmental laws, complying with norms that they are suggesting that we should comply to. And, and if we're not complying, if we're making wrong choices as to where we go, what we do, these are called carbon footprints. 
that our credit score and everybody will be getting one. This is already happening in several nations around the world. And the framework is here in America as well. You ought to know it. And you do know it, particularly if you work in big tech, if you work in big business, they're already engaging in the ESG. And uh, and and so the next thing you and I will know is that we'll be being told that we are naughty or nice based upon how far we drive, based upon how much energy we employ, whether in our vehicles or whether in our homes with our electricity and our heating and air condition. We are about to experience what we have been warned about for so long a period of time, a very technocratic um, uh, control of our lives that is unusual and burdensome. You'll find this to be true again in, in many of your liberal countries, definitely the model already happening in China. The citizens of China will get a ding in their social credit score if they are engaging in too much excess as the government might uh, might deem it. And that credit score being dinged uh, will put them in a situation where they won't be able to buy or sell um, in the freedom in which you and I have known it for a long time. These things are right now being signed into law in California by your governor. Um, just outrageous, outrageous policies. And I'll talk a little bit about that after the break. Outrageous policies that he is engaging in, in terms of um, signing bills and, and signing policies. I'll talk about it. California governor signs most aggressive package of what they call green laws. And that's the framework, you guys, for ESG. And uh, it'll be so common to you in about six months. You'll you'll know that I'm not uh, I'm not saying something that's off the wall. I'm just letting you know in advance that these things are occurring. They're letting you know, too, but they're trusting that you don't particularly care or you are not paying any attention so that when these bills are passed and your electricity and your water uh, and they're certainly talking about getting rid of your automobiles by uh, 2035. And if you are driving an electric car by 2035 and you are violating the distance laws, um, they will have the ability by the blockchain grids to simply stop your car in its tracks. I'm looking at, uh, let me see here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 bills that they want to pass. The governor named a list of the 40, it says here, 40 new green bills, which touch on things from the broad scope of the climate to more everyday matters such as community air quality, electricity supply, vehicle permits, and gas pricing. That's just the beginning. Some of the bills, which were all named in the governor's new release, include, and there you go. I'll talk about it after the break because we, we want to start becoming aware of these very draconian changes that are going to occur. Now, you can you can say that you are um, related to Rip Van Winkle. You can go ahead on and take a nap. In about a year and a half, you'll you'll know that things have changed. And uh, it might be too late to do something about it. I hope that you don't. I hope that you will take heed to the canary in the tunnel warning you about radical changes that are taking place without your permission and that uh, you might be inclined to to do something about it for your own good, for your own welfare. 
Um, again, you have a model in China. All you have to do is go online and look up uh, China, any parts of China, Beijing, um, any parts of China where they are engaging in this kind of policy. And you'll see how limited and how controlled the citizens are there. Welcome to the New World Order. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Got some uh, company that's going to join me at the bottom of the hour. We've got a conference coming up at the end of the weekend. And I want to chat with these men and with you around critical race theory and how that's been working out since the election of Joe Biden and all of that fiasco that went down. You remember that whole fiasco of the election. You do. And you remember uh, how Black Lives Matter engaged in helping shift the weight of opinion towards uh, Biden against Donald Trump. And here we are now, several years in, and our State of the Union is an absolute mess. So we're going to be talking about that and how that's impacting everything that you know that was one way and is now becoming another way. I want you to stay tuned. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline, your host, Jesse Gistan. We will be right back after this break. And now back to Lifeline. We are indeed back the time 521 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Happens to be September 19th, 2022. We are well into the new school year. And I trust that you are handling this new year with your kids in school um, in, a, in a well way that you got a good balance going on and that, um, yeah, you're not being imposed upon by policies or practices or subject matters that uh, that 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 are troubling you. Um, this is why we fight. This is why we engage in free speech and freedom of uh, assembly and engaging our um, our our, um, our our leaders and, and our representatives, even at the local levels, to make sure things are being done on the up and up. Um, if you were part of last Wednesday's um, Castro Valley School Board uh, meeting and you want to kind of give us an update, I'd be glad to hear from you. one 367 And as I said at the bottom of the hour, after our second break here, we will be having a conversation with a couple of a uh, couple of men who are in ministry, one a pastor, another engaged in worldwide ministry. Uh, both of them are named Scott, and they will be joining me for uh, probably two to three segments just to talk to you about what we both know and many of us know is the encroachment of a new ideology that has been working for many decades now and has absolutely silenced the church. And I'll be talking to you about some of the historic historic collaborations of that ideology, namely critical race theory and uh, the social justice agenda and uh, its uh, cohorts, uh, liberation theology uh, and, and, and the like. And we'll be tying all of these together to help you understand why, again, much of what's taking place in America, particularly Western countries, in the total failure to robustly expose critical race theory for what it is uh, at its framework and what it does in its methodology and what its aim is in terms of completely destroying Western civilization as we know it, notwithstanding their argument otherwise. 
And so we're going to have a good time with that. And I hope you listen and take some notes because um, you will definitely you will be definitely um, exposed to some good information uh, prior to our conference uh, during that time. Uh, I think I'll take this call, uh, Miles. Let me talk to Gloria from Winnipeg before we go to our um, our company at the end of the break. Is Gloria there? Hi, Pastor Jesse. Hi, Gloria. How are you? Oh, I'm not too bad. I just would like to ask you a question, if I may. Sure. Um, how can the Lord show you if somebody makes heaven? Oh, that's hard. That would have to be a special, um, that would have to be a special act on God's part towards any one of us. This is a great question. I'm finding myself asking asking this question a few times, so I'm going to take this one up, put my pastor's hat on for a moment and take this one up with you and share with you what I detect is going on in you and often is going on with people that ask me this very question. Uh, How can I know whether my loved one made it to heaven or not? So I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios, if you don't mind, to kind of help us understand the the sensitivity of that question. So first I would say, Gloria, that the way we can really know if a loved one made it to heaven is if we know that they really, truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ down here on earth. That's the first thing we have to remember. Whatever we know, we can only know based upon the certainty of God's word as a promise to us. And otherwise, we cannot know certainly. So here's what we know. That heaven has men and women whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world by which they are secured for a place in heaven. And that is evidenced by while, while they have lived on earth. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They trusted Christ as their savior. And therefore, the promise is whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a fundamental principle for us as to entry into heaven. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is not for righteous people. Heaven is only for saved people which means heaven is for redeemed sinners. And a redeemed sinner is a person who has been exposed to the overture of the Father's love revealed in the person of Jesus, who hung between heaven and earth as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. He is the essence of our journey. The Father is the end game for all of his sons. We are headed to the Father's house. And we can know it on this side of glory individually to the certainty of trusting Christ as Savior, especially when we trust him through our death. Now, in terms of other people knowing, they can only know what the Bible promises about those who have died and gone on to glory, like Psalm uh, uh, 1.15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all of his saints. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 
uh, 10 puts it, uh, to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what it says to us. And as Jesus said to the thief that was hanging on the cross right before he went into the Father's presence, this day shall you be with me in paradise. Now, these are biblical concepts that underscore that the promise that whosoever believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved is the way the Christian finds comfort. Because when we are trying to know whether a loved one made it to glory, by our observation, by our hearing or watching them, particularly if they went through a really bad sickness and they are laying on their deathbed. And there seems to be, from our vantage point, a failure of any real substantial uh, recognition or affirmation of the fact that they trust Christ as their Savior then we become a bit diswrought. We become concerned. We find ourselves struggling with uh, whether or not that loved one died and went to heaven or perished under the just wrath of God. What I say to a lot of people is that really is not the place for you to struggle. And I'm not saying that that's happening to you, but the way you frame your question, I, I get this one all the time. We ought not to as still human beings living on this side of glory, we should not be wringing our hands and toiling with what we saw the last hours of their life, what we thought we heard the last hours of their life, whether they said something to us that we want to take and turn it into a testimony the last hours of their life. Because all of that can be really, uh, again, very hyper-subjective, uh, hope on our part, but it does not have the certainty of the promise that I stated that the word of God gives us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The other thing we want to know with that too, Gloria, is that a lot of times our loved ones go into, our people that we care about, go into comatose states, semi-comatose states where they're not able to communicate with us and uh, and we're cut off from them, but they're not cut off from us. And they're not cut off from God. So there is this window that I say to the people at Grace that you should leave to God. It's called God's right to know for sure where that person is when they die. It's God's right to know for sure. That way we don't have to be lying during the funeral and, and creating false assertions. All we, all we need to do during the funeral or memorial is to simply say, this is the promise of God for everyone that believes. We may not know anything certainly about our loved one, and we don't have to pretend we do. We can simply know that if they heard the gospel in their lifetime, if they were under the means of grace, if they were under the preaching of the word, if they heard the proclamation of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, his exaltation, his rule, his reign, his sovereignty and lordship over everything as the Bible is calling us to preach and teach it, that is all the uh, assurance that you and I need to have in terms of God could have saved them at the last minute, at the last hour, over the last several uh, struggling days that they may have been in a coma or in a comatose state where they couldn't talk to us. And what this means is that God will be glorified on the last day when he pulls back the curtains 
in all speculation as to who might be saved is done with. And I, I believe we will come to discover that God saved a whole lot more people than we could ever know or could ever affirm or could ever declare concretely, yes, I know they're in heaven. I don't think really that that should be the thing that we should be saying because it, it, it precludes. And again, it takes the glory away from God. Um, we want to be able to trust God that if we shared the gospel with them before they died, that's enough for us to simply wait for God to do what God is going to do on that last day when he comes back. So it becomes for you and me a need to not so much have the certainty by which we can tell other people that we know that our loved one is in heaven. No, it's for you and I to simply say we have a God who is good, who is just, who is right, who cannot lie, fail, or change. And he said that as long as we have shared the gospel with men and women, there's hope because he's able to save to the uttermost anyone that comes to him by faith. Now, I'm going to have to leave you with those words because I'm way overdue on the break. But if you want to call back later or email me, Gloria, we can expand on this conversation. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. And I'm glad you called all the way from Winnipeg. We got to take another break, you guys. And on the other side of the break, hopefully we will be having a conversation with a couple of gentlemen that will help me talk with you about some important matters in our life. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. Indeed, we are on this glorious and wonderful and very, very apropos day here in the Bay Area. Um, we have enjoyed some rain over the last couple of days, and uh, uh, that might have disrupted us a little bit. But for the most part, we needed it and uh, glad we had it. And today was uh, nice and warm, not not overly hot, but um warm enough for us to get out and do some things and to enjoy uh, to enjoy God's bountiful blessings to us here in the Bay Area. I have on the phone line with me a couple of gentlemen whom I have recently met over the course of the last year, for whom I'm also delighted to have on the air with me. One happens to be the pastor of Rocky Springs Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania, Scott Fleming. Scott, are you there? I am, yes, Jesse. Glad to have you with me this evening. And also, we have a dear brother um, whom Scott has known a lot longer than myself, uh, Brother Scott Allen, who happens to be um, a very busy man in ministry as well, engaged in what is called DiscipleNations.org. DiscipleNations.org. He uh, does a lot of work with folks around the world in very I consider a uh, very contemporary, practical, and very productive um, productive liaison labors in, in the cause of the gospel. He has a podcast as well, uh, Scott Allen, that is also um, worth looking into, DiscipleTheNations.org, and blog and podcast. The episodes are absolutely fabulous. Scott, are you there? Yeah, hi, Pastor Jesse. It's great to be with you. You too. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes, sir. Great, great. So, Scott, Alan, Pastor, Pastor Fleming, not, uh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm going to probably call <laughs> for the sake of our audiences maintaining some clarity. I'm going to I'm going to uh, call the first Scott, Pastor Fleming, the other Scott, uh, just Scott. You guys just call me Jesse and we're good. Uh, unless you have a better distinguishing format. And of course, we're going to have to figure this out for Saturday's conference, too. So um, 
Scott Fleming, Pastor Scott, you do pastor Rocky Springs Presbyterian Church, right? That's right. Um, tell, tell me um, uh, and, and tell our audience, too, a um, couple things. Uh, how long you've been pastoring there? Is that is that home for you, or are you traveling from other parts of the country to get to Pennsylvania? Um, just give us a, a little bio of of your uh, landing at at uh, the PCA Church there in in uh, Rocky Springs. Well, in God's providence, uh, my father has taught at uh, Grove City College for over thirty years. So I grew up in this area and have been familiar with Western PA basically my whole life. Yeah. But uh, I did go to a seminary in, at Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and then after that was in a, a small church in West Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've been here now at Rocky Springs for about 20 years, ministering um, with the people here. Yeah, um, and, and tell me... Um, how is it that in your ministry there up to the 20 years, that means you actually have seen uh, a generation of kids kind of grow up and take off or, or stay there? Um, and uh, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, and also, do you, do, you, do you and your wife have children? We do. We have five children. We have two in college right now. And... Um, the youngest one is six. Oh, yeah. You're still, uh, well, you've got a few about to launch, but the youngest one is six. We've got some teenagers in there. <laughs> yes, we have one that's in ninth grade, and then the, uh, our fourth child is in fifth grade. Okay. Uh, to me, that's a great, that's a, I hope that that's not too big of a stretch for you in terms of having to, uh, Having to navigate those uh, those those different chronological ages is that is that okay for you right now? Well, it has its blessings and its challenges, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, we we joked when we were looking for colleges for our oldest, we were also changing diapers for our youngest. <laughs> Been there. Done that, believe me for sure. I think I told you that we have a span from our uh, some of our daughters being upwards in their later thirties, and then our youngest daughter is, I think she'll be twenty two next month, and so we know the span in between with eight kids. So uh, mm-hmm. more bless more blessings to you as you continue uh, raising raising those kids. Let me ask Scott, uh, Scott, where 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 are you 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 you're right now in Arizona, correct? Yeah, I'm in Phoenix. Right. And born and raised? Yeah, I was born and raised in uh, Oregon, so I still have a lot of family up in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, um, so we do make trips back there uh, quite a bit, and uh, I also have family where, near where you're at, uh, Pastor Jesse, in the Bay Area there. So so are California. you familiar uh, with the Bay Area here pretty pretty well? Uh, you know, mostly around Monterey and yeah. uh, Santa Cruz, kind of that area. Um, less so with San Francisco proper, but uh, we occasionally drive through there. So, yeah. So you guys would know. I'm we're in the Sacramento. I mean, we're in the Castro Valley uh, region, and that would be like the East Bay, not quite over the bridge, over towards San Francisco, but close enough. If I really wanted to just do a uh, a little bit of a hike here in the Castro Valley Hills. I could look over into San Francisco, but it would also be that we're not that far from the Santa Cruz area. Or um, um, you're, you were, you said you were down 
by um, Carmel in that area as well. Um, beautiful area over there. It, it really is. And we spend we spend some time in there when we want a vacation as well. Gentlemen, let me ask you a question before we go to to the break. How did you, Pastor Fleming, meet uh, Brother Scott Allen? How'd y'all meet? <laughs> well, it uh, was somebody actually at my wife's school. She teaches at a Christian school nearby. Okay. And uh, one of the pastors came and did a uh, a chapel for the children and mentioned Scott Allen in one of his books. And I looked it up and thought it was very helpful on this issue of critical race theory and reached out to him. And uh, we've been in touch now, and and he's been so great, gracious to come and, and be a part of this conference here on Saturday. Yeah, I'll tell you, both of you guys have been um, refreshingly easy to um, to get to know and chat with. I just want to let you know that. And uh, <clears throat> Scott has a wonderful demeanor. I enjoy listening to him on his podcast. Definitely, you're going to be getting a lot of people plugging in here from the Bay Area because we definitely have lots of people that listen to our Monday Monday edition of Lifeline. We're going to take a break. You guys hold on. And when we come back, we're going to just kind of get into the topic of critical race theory and social justice and its origins a little bit, not to tell everything that we're going to do on Saturday, but to just really kind of talk about why it is important both for us to understand its relationship to the church as well as to the world that we are called to bring the gospel to. So just hold on for a moment. You guys, we're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline with your host, Jesse Giston. We're going to pay some bills when we come back. Um, This trialogue will continue, and I want to encourage you to tell your friends to call in and listen. We're going to be talking about stuff that you're not hearing in your church or in the news. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. We are back. The time is 5.50 on this Monday edition of Lifeline, and I have the pleasure of having with me Scott Fleming as well as Scott Allen, and we will be a, um, a trifecta, hopefully, this Saturday as we collaborate around a subject matter that I want to get into now, and I hope I can have these gentlemen for the next half hour. Um, and if you guys want to... Um, ask a question about the subject matter, um, you may. one 367 will try to answer your questions around this matter. So I want to ask both of you guys, um, Scott and Scott, Mr. Fleming and Mr. Allen, I want to ask both of you guys, what was it that um, that caused you to move towards and tackle this subject of uh, woke ideology and... Um, and critical race theory, social justice, all three of those terms are um, are um, related, as you know, as you would know. And either one of you can start. Um, what what just drew you to that battle? Because in a lot of places, this is a very radioactive topic. Well, Pastor Scott, do you want to start? Uh, I can, yes. Um I guess I would say simply I've been following the trends of our our culture for many years, and something just, if you will, went off the deep end during the election cycle with 
uh, Hillary and Trump. And I'm like, wow, something has really gone to another level here. And I started looking into it some more and understood more. And I keep learning more about all of this. And the more I, I read and study about the critical theories, the more uh, alarming it is, as well as the more convinced I am that it provides no hope whatsoever. And uh, really, it's like oil and water in the church. And we as, as a church need to, first of all, see and understand that, and two, uh, speak about it and and uphold the truth of the Scriptures, um, for there is no hope in the woke worldview. And, uh, and yet it's being shoved down our throats everywhere. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I had some people from our area talk to me about it, some students from the college and so forth, and, and I run into people all the time who are confused about it. Yeah. And that's why we wanted to do this conference, to try to help uh, people to understand better and uh, be able to stand for what is true and, and keep the gospel pure. Good deal. Good deal. Talk talk to us about how you were um, <clears throat> awakened, no pun intended, uh, Scott, and, and moved to deal with it, even to the point of writing a very uh, relevant uh, book, Social Justice, Not Biblical. How, how did that occur for you? Well, I... <laughs> Yeah, I am. First of all, maybe I'll preface this just by saying that I'm a I'm a person that's passionate about um, ideas and the power of ideas and words and language for transforming culture. I uh, um, I believe in the power of biblical language, biblical words, biblical truth for for literally transforming cultures. And at the same time, I'm very attuned to lies. You know, when they come into the culture, I like to understand what's behind the lies. Um, so that's just a passion of mine. It, it has been for my whole life, really. I, I think for me, this this current issue, uh, you know, boy, it's hard to say where exactly it started. I think in some ways it started with President Obama. You know, I mean, I think we were all so hopeful uh, when he was elected that uh, we had really crossed or we'd really... Um, yeah, we'd crossed a significant milestone in race relations in the country. And then it seemed to me, and I think a lot of other people, things actually started getting worse. And that was puzzling to me. Why Why were race relations seemingly getting worse? Um, you know, there was those uh, deaths of uh, young black men that were, that were covered in the news at that time, you know. And it was right around the time that Black Lives Matter uh, was kind of first on the scene around 2015. I was curious about this organization. Um, a lot of my friends were supporting it. Um, uh, I remember hearing um, Michelle Higgins uh, from the platform of America's premier missions conference, Urbana, in 2015, uh, a conference that I had attended many times and had a huge impact on my life, um, from the platform you know, calling the young, idealistic, missions-minded students to throw their support behind Black Lives Matter. And, um, but to me, as I looked into the organization, it didn't seem like it truly cared about black lives. Uh, it seemed like it was trying to foment racial division. And at the same time, I started hearing these new words and phrases that I hadn't before, uh, white privilege, um, systemic racism, and it kind of came to a head for me when some dear, close friends in the church here in Phoenix 
um, called me out in my questioning. I was doing some questioning of Black Lives Matter on my blog, and they came over and they they, they challenged me. They said, "You need to get right with this, Scott. You're not you're not exactly." And I I just tried to understand what, what where are you coming from? What do these things mean? Where do these ideas come from? And that session turned into kind of like a, a evangelistic kind of session. They were trying to to witness to me to bring me on board with this movement, and uh, that alarmed me because these are dear Christian friends, and I thought I thought they're falling for something that isn't true, that isn't it, that isn't rooted in the Bible, even though it uses biblical words like justice or social justice, and it stands for things that we all stand for. We, none of us, are, you know, stand for racism. You know, we all, you know, want to fight against racism. So, but I was very alarmed at these ideas. I remember watching a video, a viral YouTube video of students at Yale University confronting a Jewish professor and screaming at him, black and brown students, and just uh, yelling at him in the most profane ways, and I thought I'd never it really shook me up. I'd never seen anything like that, and it turned out that that professor was fired from the school for challenging the costumes that the students were wearing, or something at Halloween, some silly thing like that. And I thought, what is going on? So all that to say, it really started me on a journey to try to find out what were these ideas, what was happening, what was going on in the culture, and that personal journey led me to write the book. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. So what we're going to be doing now, if you gentlemen don't mind, is we're going to actually come up from the kind of uh, generalizing of this subject matter because uh, people in the audience would kind of know what we are talking about relative to the peculiar and bizarre um, election processes that somewhat started with Hillary Clinton and uh, and and President Trump, uh, and then the me- melee and confusion and um, and the demonstrative uh, protesting that occurred the last couple of years uh, with uh, George George Floyd, uh, and and they would obviously know this audience that listens to me now for the last two or three four years will know once we get to talking much more on the academic side of the roots of this whole movement, uh, what really and truly is going on at the ideological level, then at the proxies level, because Scott, what you're talking about is running across the proxies, the, uh, the movement, the, um, the agenda that you rightly call a kind of neo-evangelism on the part of these social justice warriors. And what I definitely want to do more fully after the break, just kind of talk about its uh, historic roots, uh, going 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 back at least on a philosophical level to Karl Marx and Engels, and then the Frankfurt School, as you guys would know, where Gramsci and and uh, Adorno and many others, and then making its way all the way up into um, the Americas in our critical. Uh, legal system, and then finally making it to the universities. And what what you and I are being compelled, gentlemen, to do is to deal not so much with a new ideology, because the ideology has been around for a while. Uh, We're dealing with now the manifestation of its evangelical zeal, because now their workers 
have moved out into the public sphere to expose this system with force and vigor and the power of uh, government entities and and power brokers of all kind of um, uh, institutions, again, uh, at, at high levels of, of can, income, George Soros and other institutions as well, powering this movement for which we really do need to be talking about it because it's come out like a flood uh, against humanity, particularly the West, in a way in which it really just molds over people who weren't ready for it and takes them aback and they don't really know what to do with it because the movement has been so strategic and so powerful and so pervasive that um, it's catching people and has caught people by surprise. But what I definitely want to do is start with some of the main players on the philosophical plane and then get into some of the more uh, uh, practical players that played a role in framing the uh, the ideology slash theology and how it has impacted our universities and now is making its way into our public schools, our high schools, and sadly to say, into our churches. It's there. We know it. It's not time to pretend like it's not. Um, the last election for me, Scott and Scott, with um, with uh, Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden, the fiasco that was uh, worldwide in its observation with the with the modality of voting being turned upside down on its head and the scandal that took place that that um, allowed for the outcome to be that uh, we have the present administration that we do now, which is on board with this whole movement called uh, wokeism and social justice. And, and they won't use the term critical race theory because it's too obvious of a nomenclature. And we'll talk about that. But where we are today is not happenstance, is not a consequence of accident. It is strategic. It is what, as you guys will know, is the long march to... Um, totalitarianism, and people ought to fear it, ought to be concerned, ought to be prepared, ought to be ready to deal with it and address it, because it's not going to go anywhere so long as we are tolerant and passive. So we're going to take another break. We're going to pay some bills. Then we're going to talk, come back and talk about how this system has embedded itself across all of our institutions and has emerged to be actually a new anti-gospel uh, and, and and I want us to kind of just deal with it. So we're going to take another break, pay some bills. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan, with Pastor Scott Fleming and Brother Scott Allen, two men who are willing to discuss these things and address these things um, in it, and because they care about human beings. They care about humanity. They care about the souls of men and women. They are doing these things as well as your host. So we'll take this subject matter up. Again, the number is one 367 one We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.